Heavenly Father, we thank you and we praise you for your word. It is such a blessing, Lord, that we can open this up and we can hear from the creator of the universe, Lord, that it is the living and breathing word of God, not an old antiquated book, not the false teaching of some man that, that many follow, but Lord, it is truly the words of God delivered to, to man. And Lord, I just pray tonight as we look at your word that you truly would be our teacher, Lord, that we would be receptive to what you want to minister to our hearts. And again, I pray that man would decrease, that your spirit would increase, that you would be glorified. In Jesus' name we pray and all God's people said... Amen. Hey, tonight, I want to encourage you with something. I'm going to try to go through the whole chapter tonight, and the reason being, and I may not go as in-depth in some of the verses as I usually do, but I want you to see the context of chapter 23. This is an incredible chapter, because what we see in this chapter is we see what I titled the message, it's it's got celebration and expectation. It's celebration of the seven feasts that the Jews observed, and each one of the feasts was looking back at something, and unbeknownst to them, looking forward to something. And that celebration, they would look back at the things that God had done, but also look forward to the things that God was yet yet to do. And as we go through the text tonight, we're going to see that, that there are four feasts, the first four feasts that were held in the spring or summertime. And we're going to see that these feasts are, again, joyous celebrations, and every one of them is prophetic, and every one of them has been fulfilled already. All four of them were prophetic truths about the coming Messiah, every one of which was fulfilled by Jesus Christ. Then we get to the last three feasts, and those three feasts have yet to be fulfilled. They have an Old Testament thing that they commemorate, but they look forward to the second coming of Christ. And as we go through these feasts and we look at the first four, we're going to clearly see the cross. And as we look at the last three, we're going to clearly see the return of our Savior and the setting up of the Millennial Kingdom. And what I love about this is this was written 1,500 years before Jesus came to earth. But what's awesome is when God writes something, the moment He writes it is as good as done. Amen? And He wrote it 1,500 years before it took place. And we're going to look and see tonight really clearly a picture of our Savior. Now understand that these feasts, each one of them, were feasts that were fulfilling, that would fulfill prophecy. But what's awesome is they were kind of like the celebrations that we have today. The best thing I could think of would be like the 4th of July. You know, the 4th of July, we celebrate our independence 200 years ago. We have fireworks. Everybody takes a day off of work. We all get together and eat a bunch of food, and and it's a big celebration. And that's really what the Jewish feasts were. There were times when every single male was required by, by law to come back to Jerusalem and to set aside this time to celebrate something that God had done. And what's awesome is that we'll also see as they celebrate, unbeknownst to them, that it pointed forward to something that was coming. Now the good news is that we've seen the fulfillment of four of them, and I truly believe that most of us will see the fulfillment of the last three as well when Jesus Christ comes back. Amen? He's coming soon, and I want to, tonight I, I hope that some of the stuff I shares with you, share with you will give you a sense of just the urgency of the fact that we need to be ready because Christ could come at any time. We're going to see these holy convocations or these, these times of celebration, and we're going to see that as we look at them, just the way they celebrate, and really give us a glimpse of who these people are. So let's begin by looking at the four spring or summer feasts, and we'll see how those uh, have been fulfilled in prophecy already. Look at verse 1 of 23. And the Lord spoke to Moses and said, Speak to the children of Israel, the feast of the Lord, which you shall proclaim to be holy convocations. These are my feasts. So these are the feasts of the Lord, they're holy convocations, these are my feasts. Moses was to clearly let 
Israel understand and know to communicate to them how important these feasts really were. They were not just rituals, they were not just things that they were to do by rote, but they had meaning behind them. And God wanted them to understand. And as we continue to look at these, we're going to see how they were called to respond. There were times set aside by God for His people to come together to rest, to be refreshed, to have a time of remembrance for all that He had done for them, a time of celebration, a time of fellowship, and a time of worship. Now look at verse 3. And it says there, Six days shall work be done, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of solemn rest, a holy convocation. You shall do no work on it. It is the Sabbath of the Lord in all your dwellings. Now a holy convocation means a sacred, consecrated assembly. Now you can learn a lot about people by watching the holidays they celebrate and how they celebrate them. These were feasts. These were things ordained by God. And how they responded to them would be a picture of their heart. And I thought about how people celebrate Christmas and Easter today. And you know, most of the world just doesn't get it. Christmas time is Santa Claus and and, you know, getting a bunch of gifts and stuff and watching football games on TV. And it's gotten so far away from being really all about the Savior. Christmas is the birth of Jesus Christ. Amen? Can you imagine that a birthday party for you? And you showed up and everybody there sang songs about some fat guy in a red suit. And they talked about some fictitious reindeer with a red nose. And then when they were all done, they gave gifts to each other. And then they got drunk and were laying around all over the house. What a great birthday party, right? And the reality is, when it comes to Christ, Christmas is about Him. And you know what? I want to encourage you dads especially, as the spiritual leaders in your home, you need to make the decision to set Christmas aside as being Christ's birthday above all else. Amen? I've told my kids repeatedly, if your first thing you think about when you wake up on Christmas morning is, where's my stuff? We won't have stuff anymore. In my house, we only give three gifts on Christmas because Jesus only got three and my kids aren't getting any more gifts on Christmas than Jesus got, amen, on his birthday, right? And, and the reason we do that, we want them to remember and we want them to know that it's all about Jesus and the greatest gift of all at Christmas was the birth of our Savior. And the way we celebrate it is a picture of our heart. And the way they would celebrate these feasts would be a picture of where these people were with God. And he wanted them to understand, he wanted them to look back and commemorate, but also at the same time, look forward to that which was coming. Easter's not about bunnies and Easter eggs and bonnets. Amen? Too many people in the world today think that's what it's about. And the reality is, it's the most, it's the most important day in the history of mankind when our Savior rose from the dead. It's Resurrection Sunday, that's what I like to call it, even more than Easter so we see that these feasts were appointed times. They were set times to commemorate and to look forward. And, and he starts off by talking to them about the Sabbath. And I want you to see something here that I think is really important. He sets time aside every single week for his people with him. He set aside one day a week and said, guys, you don't work on that day. You don't do anything else. You come spend that time with me. Now, why would he put that right before he starts listing all the feasts? Because he didn't want them to think that the feasts were taking the place of the Sabbath. Going to church on Easter and Christmas does not do away with the need to be there on Sunday. Amen? He was letting them know, guys, I don't want to just see you twice a year. You know, when my kids grow up, I hope they come to see Dad more than Easter and Christmas. My heart's going to break if they don't. My hope would be that they can come and hang out with Dad every Sunday and have lunch, and hopefully they'll be going to church here. You know, I would love to hang out with my kids forever because I love my children. And how much more as our perfect Heavenly Father wants to spend time with us? 
He wants us to draw near to Him, and not just during the feast days, not just during the special holidays, but to have an intimate, personal relationship with Him that's 24 hours a day, 7 days a week. It was not to take the place, these feasts that He was about to tell them about. And that's why He started off by saying, hey, you keep the Sabbath. It's a set-apart, sacred day. It's a time for you to spend with me. Church should be a get-to and not a have-to. Amen? You guys are here on Wednesday, so I'm preaching to the choir. But the reality is that the desire to spend time with God's people should be a blessing. So the first one of these feasts is one that we've been talking about quite a bit. And every one we look at tonight, we've seen in the book of Exodus, and some of them here in Leviticus. And I want you to just to, I won't take as deep of a look, but I want to give you just the context. Look at verse 4. These are the feasts of the Lord, holy convocations which you shall proclaim at their appointed times. On the 14th day of the first month at twilight is the Lord's Passover. Now, what was Passover done in remembrance of? What was it? Who remembers? Their deliverance out of bondage in Egypt. Now, remember they were in bondage for 400 years? And remember that during that time that God called a man by the name of Moses, a stutterer who was sitting there and was tending to sheep, had been banished out of Egypt, and he saw a burning bush, and God spoke to him and sent him back to be the deliverer. And this man went back, Moses, and Pharaoh wouldn't respond, and he started bringing plagues upon the people. And we know all the different plagues, the locusts, and all the things that happened, but eventually the one that finally made Pharaoh let the people go was the final plague. And the final plague was Passover. And that's when the angel of death was going to come and kill the firstborn of every house where there was no blood on the doorpost at the top and in the, the basin at the bottom of the feet. Now we've talked about this, that Passover is in remembrance of their deliverance out of bondage in Egypt. And we know that Egypt, as we've talked about, is a type of what? Who remembers? The world. And bondage is a typology of what? Sin. They were in bondage to the world, had been for 400 years, and the only thing that delivered them from that bondage was Passover. Now, Passover, as we know, is a very clear picture of the cross. And the reason we know that, if we just look at it briefly, I'm not going to take a lot of time, but they took the blood of a firstborn spotless lamb. And they couldn't just bring the lamb into their house and forget about it, and they couldn't even just cut the the throat of the lamb. They literally had to apply the blood. You can't just admire the lamb you can't just know about the lamb you can't just have the lamb in your house the blood must be applied so they had to take the blood of that lamb and put it on the doorpost and on the mat and it was a perfect picture of the cross and those who had the blood of the lamb in the shape of a cross and the angel of death would pass over now it's interesting to me that after they sacrificed the lamb they took the lamb into their house and they had it for a meal Remember when Jesus said, unless you eat of my flesh, you can have no part of me? Again, it's not just knowing about Jesus Christ, but taking Him into your life. Putting Him on the throne. He must be ruler. He must be king, Lord and God and Savior, all all in one. Amen? And so we see here that Passover was a picture of them being delivered out of bondage. It was a commemoration of their deliverance out of the bondage to, to Egypt, but it was pointing forward to the cross, to the fact that Jesus was coming. And again, we know that that was fulfilled by the Lord, again, in celebration. Now, it's interesting, in 1 Corinthians 5, 7, it says, Christ is our Passover sacrifice for us. When John saw Jesus coming, John the Baptist, he said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. 
very clear. There's no doubt that Passover was pointing to Jesus. And it was a commemoration of the deliverance from bondage, but it was in expectation of the coming cross. Again, without the shedding of blood, there can be no forgiveness of sin. You, can't, you need to more than just believe that He died for you. You must receive Him into your life as your Lord, as your Savior, and as your King. Now it's interesting that when Jesus came into uh, Jerusalem, He was inspected for four days by the Jews before they crucified Him. When they took the Passover lamb, they inspected it for four days before they killed it. Do you know that at the very moment that Jesus was hanging on the cross, it was the 14th day of Nisan. And what does it say in this text here? When was Passover? The 14th day of Nisan. The very moment, and that's roughly March, April. They have a lunar calendar, not a a solar one like we do. And so their calendar is a little bit different, but it was like March, April time, springtime. And Jesus was hanging on the cross, and they were slitting the throats of the Passover lambs at the same time. They were getting ready for Passover. They were getting ready to celebrate, and Jesus was hanging on the cross. It commemorated bondage, but it was pointing to the coming Savior. Look at the second feast, verse 5. Verse 6, excuse me. On the 15th day of the month is the feast of unleavened bread to the Lord. Seven days you must eat unleavened bread. On the first day you shall have a holy convocation. You shall do no customary work on it. But you shall offer an offering made by fire to the Lord for seven days. The seventh day shall be a holy convocation. You shall do no customary work on it. Now the feast of unleavened bread. Historically, it pointed back to them being delivered out of bondage. Because remember when they were delivered, they went out of Egypt in a hurry. You guys remember that? They went out with great haste. They didn't have time to bake the bread and wait for it to rise. And so they literally had to bake it without leaven. They had to make it quickly and take unleavened bread with them. It was a sign of them being in a hurry. It was a sign of them being delivered from bondage, but making haste to get away from Egypt. Just as we as believers, when we've been redeemed by the shed blood of Jesus Christ, we too should make haste to get away from the world. Amen? We shouldn't say, oh, I'm a Christian now, but I'm going to keep hanging on to the world. I'm going to keep living in the world. I'm going to keep acting like the world. The Bible says, be ye separate, to come out of the world. We're to be in the world, but not of the world anymore. We're to minister to the world, but have no fellowship with it. And so it commemorated them making haste and coming out of the place of bondage. What does it mean going forward? Well, leaven is a type of what? Sin. And Egypt, again, is a type of the world. And so we see here that the expectation is that they were to be delivered from sin. That there was to be no more sin. That not only delivered from bondage of the world, but now freed from sin. And the ultimate fulfillment would come in Jesus Christ, who is the ultimate picture of unleavened bread. Because Jesus said, I am what? The bread of life. Amen? And He is without sin. So unleavened bread is a picture of whom? Jesus Christ. What did he do at the Lord's Supper? He picked up the unleavened bread and he broke it and he said, this is what? My body, which is broken for you. Now we've talked about this before and it's interesting to me just to, when you look at Jewish traditions and I asked a lady when I was flying back from Israel about this and she didn't, she wasn't tracking with me. I've asked a few other people, but one of these days we're going to do this. We're going to have a a Passover meal. I just want to do it because I think it would be eye-opener. I really do. But a Passover meal is called a Seder. And in the Seder, one of the things they do between the second and third cup of wine, we won't be drinking wine, by the way, 
We'll be having grape juice or something else, right? But between the second and third cup of wine, they had a bag that they opened that had three pieces of unleavened bread that were exactly the same size. And they pulled those pieces of bread out, and I've told some of you this before, I've heard it, and they took the middle piece out from it, and they pulled that middle piece of what we would call matzah bread today, unleavened bread, they pulled that piece out. Now, have you ever seen matzah bread? Who's seen matzah bread before? It's striped and it's pierced. Have you ever noticed that? It's got stripes going across it, and it's got holes in it. Who's that a picture of? By his stripes we are healed, and what did they do to his side on the cross? They pierced him. What did they do to his hands? They pierced him. What did they do to his feet? They pierced him. Here, you think that it's by chance that this leavened bread, this unleavened bread, this picture of the bread of life without sin, and they take the middle piece. Now, three pieces, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. They take the middle piece out and they break it in half. What's that a picture of? The cross. Then they wrap it in linen and they go and they hide it. Then all the children run through the house to try to find it, and whoever finds it brings it back, and when they find it, they, then, they celebrate and rejoice and drink their third cup of wine. Interesting, the third cup, because it was on the third day that Jesus rose from the dead. You look at this stuff and you say, hey, wait a minute, it's all, does that point to Muhammad in any way? Does that point to Buddha, the big fat guy with oranges in his lap? I mean, does that point to anybody other than Jesus Christ? What a clear picture as you look at the the Jewish Passover and as you look at this unleavened bread, all of it points to Jesus Christ. He is the fulfillment of all of it. They were looking back and making haste out of bondage, but it really looked forward to the coming of the Savior. It really was pointing to Him. An awesome thing. Again, I've asked Jews about that, and I say... I ask them, and, I, and they tell me, yeah, that's what we do. Yeah, you take the middle piece out, yeah, and it's striped and it's pierced, yeah, and you break it in half, yeah, and you wrap it in linen, yeah, and then you go hide it, yeah, and then you find it, and everybody celebrates. I go, now, do you know when Jesus was born what he was wrapped in? What was he wrapped in? Linen. And when he was buried, what was he wrapped in? Linen. And what did they do to his body? They hid it behind the stone, right? And then when the stone was rolled away, he was no longer there. There was rejoicing, and it was on the third day. And I'm amazed when I tell people this, they go, I I don't see that. Duh! How can you not see that, right? It is the clearest thing in the world, but without the Holy Spirit, there's a refusal to understand. But what a clear picture of Jesus Christ, that He died on the cross for our sins. Now, it's interesting that they named that part of the Seder Afikomen, or Afikomen. Now, Afikomen is the only Greek word used in the entire Seder. And you know what it means? It means, I came. Now, does this blow your mind? It means I came, and it's a picture of Christ, and they still don't get it. Well, praise God that ultimately many of them are going to come to know Him. So Passover points to what? What does it point to? The cross, okay? And the unleavened bread points to Christ, or it points to His time when He was in the tomb. Number three, verse nine. I turn the page. And the Lord spoke to Moses, Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, When you come into the land which I give you and reap its harvest, then you shall bring a sheaf of first fruits of your harvest to the priest. He shall wave the sheaf before the Lord to be accepted on your behalf. On the day after the Sabbath, the priest shall wave it. And you shall offer it on that day when you wave the sheaf, a male lamb of the first year without blemish, as a burnt offering to the Lord. So we go now to the third one, which is the Feast of First Fruits. 
Now, he says in verse 10, once you enter into the land of promise, once you enter into that place, then you are to bring the best of what you have and offer it to me. The harvest of the first fruits, the best of what you have, you bring it before me. And we see there that they, they wave the sheaf. Now we know that at that time, the only thing that, that had been harvested that early in the year would be barley. And they were not allowed to go and harvest any more of the barley until they first brought the first part of the harvest and brought it to the priest and they offered it to the Lord. And then and only then did they go back and harvest for themselves. What's the picture here? To give God of the first fruits. That He gets the first of my life, the first of my time, the first of my treasures, the first of my talents, not what's left over. Amen? Not the last five minutes of the day when I'm drooling on my Bible and my head's bobbing in my bed. Not, not, not then. Give Him the best of my time, the best of my fruit. And so we see here that that was a commemoration, that they were called to do that. And it says here, they also were to bring a male lamb without blemish. Now who's that a picture of? That's Jesus Christ again. In 1 Corinthians 15, 20, it says, But now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Jesus is referred to as the first fruits in the New Testament. So they're having the celebration of the first fruits when they bring the best that they have and they give it to the Lord. And now we see that it was a picture of when Jesus was going to come and He was going to be given, God gave His best on behalf of us. He gave His best on our behalf that we might have eternal life. And the picture here that we see is the picture of the resurrection of Christ. Because it says here again that He's the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Christ has risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. So Jesus' resurrection is what the feast of the first fruit pictured. Now this makes a lot of sense. Passover, the cross, unleavened bread, when his body was broken and he was placed in the tomb. Now we have the feast of first fruits and it points to his resurrection. What a clear picture. 1,500 years before it happened, all of it pointing to Jesus. They're celebrating, they're looking back, and they're missing out on what was coming forward. Verse 13. Its grain offering shall be two-tenths of an ephah of fine flour mixed with oil, an offering made by fire to the Lord for a sweet aroma, and the drink offering shall be of wine, one-fourth of a hen. Now again, I encourage you to get the tapes because we went through this stuff in depth, but we know that the fine flour being sifted is again a picture of the sinless perfection of Christ. The oil in the Bible is a picture of what? Holy Spirit. And the fire is a picture of trial or testing. And these are all things that were evident in Christ. He was sifted as wheat, right? He was tempted in all ways and yet without sin. He would, the Holy Spirit was upon him. He went through the trials and he was a sweet aroma in the presence of the Father. Verse 14. You shall eat neither bread nor parched grain nor fresh grain until the same day you have brought an offering to your God. It shall be a statute forever throughout your generations in all your dwellings. They were not to eat of any of the harvest until they first consecrated it to the Lord. So the first fruit was consecrated, then the rest of the harvest was accepted. Jesus was consecrated so that you and I might be accepted. Amen? How do we, when did the triumph happen over sin and death? When Jesus came out of the tomb. The first fruits of resurrection. He had triumphed over sin and death. And so here we are 1,500 years before it happens, and all of it is pointing to Jesus Christ. Historically, again, commemorating of giving, but the expectation of the resurrection of the Savior. Now the fourth one, this is interesting, we're looking at this in Acts right now on Sunday mornings. The next feast is the Feast of Weeks, also has another name, who knows what it is? 
Pentecost. So, you have his death, his burial, his resurrection, and what comes next? Pentecost. In the New Testament, you have his death, his burial, his resurrection, and what comes next after the Gospels in the book of Acts? Pentecost, the giving of the Holy Spirit. Let's take a look in verse 15 to 22. And you shall count for yourselves from the day after the Sabbath, from the day that you brought your sheep and a wave offering, seven Sabbaths shall be completed. Count 50 days to the day after the seventh Sabbath that you shall offer a new grain offering to the Lord. Now, historically, they were celebrating the giving of the law. Because the law was given 50 days after Passover. Those of you here in Exodus, we saw them coming out of bondage. And when did Moses come down from Mount Sinai with the law in his hands? 50 days after Passover. When did the Holy Spirit come? 50 days after Jesus went to the cross. Isn't it awesome how the Bible all fits perfectly? It's incredible to me when people say, oh, a bunch of men wrote it. Uh, Have you read it? Well, not really. Well, that's the problem. Biblical ignorance is the reason that people don't see so clearly a picture of Christ. And so 50 days after Passover was when the law was given, and 50 days after Jesus went to the cross is when the Holy Spirit was given. And it's interesting, in the Old Testament, they were given the law to reveal what to them? That they were what? Sinners. And the Holy Spirit was given that they might have power to be bold witnesses on behalf of the kingdom of God. The church started... It's interesting, the nation of Israel started with the law, and the church started with the Holy Spirit. And both of them happened at this feast of Pentecost. They were looking back to the giving of the law, and Pentecost was looking forward to the coming of the Holy Spirit. Bible just flat out rocks, you gotta love it. And so Mount Sinai, it's interesting, when the law was given, what was on the mountain? Fire. You guys remember that? There was fire on the mountain. He went up on the mountain, what happened on the mountain? The earth what? shook there was an earthquake and then when he came down they were worshiping idols and what happened three thousand people died you guys remember that when the holy spirit was given what came down on the people fire and then what happened the earth shook and three thousand souls were added to the kingdom that day nothing happens by chance in god's word three thousand died when the law came because the law revealed man's sin and three thousand were added to the body or the kingdom of God, when the Holy Spirit was given. Clear pictures of what was behind them, but also what was going to come. Verse 17. You shall bring from your dwellings two wave loaves of two-tenths of an ephah. They shall be of fine flour. They shall be baked with leaven. These are the first fruits of the Lord. Now this is interesting. This is the only time you see an offering, now under it was, understand it was not put on the altar, okay? Because no offering with, that, that contained leaven was ever put on the altar. But these two loaves were a picture of two things. Looking back, they were a picture of the two tablets of the law. Right? When he came down, he had two tablets. And what is leaven? Leaven is sin. How do we know that we're sinners? The law reveals it to us. So as they were baking this, with leaven in it, it was pointing to the tablets that revealed that they were sinners. I believe that looking forward, it was a realization that we as a church, though we've been made holy through the fact that we are now wed to our Savior, the reality is that the church will always still struggle with sin. Amen? You know what? There's no such thing as a perfect church. If you're looking for the perfect church, 
when you get there, you'll ruin it anyway, okay? So the reality is there's no such thing as a perfect church. You need to go look for a place where you can minister to others, not for the place that has, well, it's got to have the perfect music and they got a really soft chair. Well, you wouldn't come back here, soft chairs. But the reality is some people are looking for a church to be perfect when we need to be coming looking to serve, not to be served. We should be fed there and ministered to and encouraged. But we see here again that this leaven was a realization that, that one, that, that the law revealed sin, but also that sin itself would remain in the church. Let me read something to you out of Ephesians chapter 3, it's in chapter 2, excuse me, verse 14 to 15. It says, For he himself is our peace, who has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of separation, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, that is the law, commandments contained in the ordinance, so as to create in himself one new man from two, thus making one peace. I also believe that this is pointing to the fact that the Jews and Gentiles are now one in Christ. Amen? Two separate loaves, but now there's no Jews anymore. Do you understand that? When it comes to the kingdom of God, I don't get the whole born-again Jew program. You're just born again. Amen? And there's no Gentiles. We're Christians. Amen? We're Christians. We're new creations in Christ. That's who we are. I'm not going to stand before God and say, I'm, I'm a, a Scottish, Irish, Italian, German, French, American, Indian, Christian. I'm not going to... I'm a Christian. Amen? Man looks on the outward appearance, God looks on the heart. And what's awesome is that because of the work of the cross, that middle wall that separated the Jews and the Gentiles in the temple was torn down and it doesn't exist anymore. We're just plain Christians. Amen? And we're all a part of the same body. And by the way, it's not you know, Presbyterian Christians and Baptist Christians and Episcopal Christians and Calvary Chapel Christians. and They're just Christians. Just one church. And we're all a part of it. And our passion, our desire should, see, should be not to build Calvary Chapel, but to build the kingdom of God. To see that people are coming to know Christ. I don't care what lifeboat they get in as long as they get to shore. Amen? And we need to be encouraging and praying for the pastors of the other churches here in town that they would teach God's word without compromise. We need to be loving them and holding up their hands and not bringing division. He baked two loaves and they were brought together. A picture of the Jews and the Gentiles coming now as one. Verses 18 through 20. And you shall offer with the bread seven lambs of the first year without blemish, one young bull and two rams. They shall be as a burnt offering to the Lord with your grain offering, your drink offerings, an offering made by fire for a sweet aroma to the Lord. Now whenever I see a number of animals given in a sacrifice, I always wonder why. And I know there's a reason because it's in the Bible. Amen? Now, there were ten animals given. How many commandments were there? Ten. What does this point back to? The law. But what's interesting to me, seven lambs. What's the number of, com- of completion or perfection? Seven. Seven lambs. Another picture, yet again, of Christ, who is the perfect Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world. Now, why a bull? We've talked about this before. A bull was a beast of burden. The Bible says, Come unto me, all you who labor and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. His yoke is easy and his burden is light. If you're burdened here tonight, you don't have to be anymore. Amen? He wants to take your burdens for you. And then two rams, and I find that interesting, because remember with Abraham and Isaac when they were going up on the mountain? Remember that? And they're going to make sacrifice of Isaac? And at one point, it's, he's got his son there, and he's, Dad, i got the fire in the wood, but where's the sacrifice? 
And he says the Lord will provide himself, not for himself, the Lord will provide himself a sacrifice. And what happens as he raises the knife to, to kill his own son, to sacrifice him, a picture of Jesus Christ himself laying on the wood about to sacrifice Isaac, God stops him and says, now I know you'll hold nothing back from me, Abraham. And what did he turn and see in the thicket? A ram. Here we have a ram. All of this pointing to yet again our Savior. Love the Bible. It's all in there for a reason. I mean, and that's why we read the book, don't wait for the movie, right? It's so good when we spend time in God's Word. There's so much He wants to minister to us. I mean, it just encourages me and strengthens my faith every single time I open up the Bible. I just can't get enough of it. Now it says here, Then you shall sacrifice one kid of the goats as a sin offering, and two male lambs of the first year as a sacrifice of a peace offering. The priest shall wave them with the bread of the first fruits as a wave offering before the Lord with the two lambs. They shall be holy to the Lord for the priest. And you shall proclaim on that same day that it is a holy provocation to you. You shall do no customary work on it. It shall be a statute forever in all your dwellings throughout your generations. Have you noticed how whenever they make sacrifice, he tells them not to do work? Why? Because he wants them to understand that the sacrifice is what saves them, not the work. He says, don't do any work when you're making sacrifice because then you'll think that your work's somehow attributed to you being forgiven. It's not your work, it's the sacrifice. Make the sacrifice, do no work. I want you looking at the altar, not looking at, how, at the sweat on your own brow and thinking somehow you've earned it, somehow you've attained it. He says, don't do any work. The focus, again, I believe, is also that during this feast, their focus was only being one place. And that was on the Lord and not on out trying to make money. Not on trying to chase a buck and trying to do stuff. He said, look, during this feast, look, it's a picture of me. It's a picture of what I'm going to do for you on the cross. I'm going to pay for your sin. And I don't want your, your attention divided. And you know, can I encourage you with something? Don't try to read your Bible while the TV's on. Amen? If Jesus Christ showed up at your house and wanted to talk to you, would you turn the TV off? Amen? That was weak. Amen? Okay. I mean, but we opened up the Bible and we got like Dateline on over here. And, uh, uh, yeah. I didn't get anything out of my study tonight. Duh. I wonder why. I know all about what, you know, somebody, you know, Diane Sawyer had to say. But we need to spend intimate time with the Lord. Not with the radio on and trying to pray or, you know, or trying to talk to the kid. You know, spend intimate time alone with the Savior. He says, don't do any work. Don't be double-minded. Don't be focused on the world and having very little time for me. Seek first the kingdom of God. Amen? And His righteousness. And all these things will be added unto you. No work to be done. Focus on God, not the pursuit of wealth. The harvest was being celebrated along with giving of the law. And it says there in verse 22, When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not wholly reap the corners of your field. When you reap, nor shall you gather any gleaning from your harvest, you shall leave them for the poor and for the stranger. I am the Lord your God. You know what? Even as they were celebrating this huge harvest, and they were coming and giving their first fruits to the Lord, which is what He required of them, He said, I don't want you to take it all for yourself. So you give the first and the best to the Lord, and then you still make sure that out of what is left, you minister to those who have less than you do. You know what? I believe that if all Christians would give as God has called us to, we would not need a welfare system in the United States of America. Amen? 
If every Christian gave as God called them to, every time somebody had need, they would go to a church and ask them for help. Do you think we'd have an opportunity for the gospel? Somebody shows up and says, I have no food. Come on in here. Here's our warehouse full of food because people give. Help yourself. I don't have a place to live. Come on down. We own these apartments. Go move into one of those. We want to just love on you because that's what Jesus did. Amen? And if we would give, we'd be able to reach out and minister to the poor. But out of our greed sometimes, well, I gave God. It's all God's, by the way. Not just what you give Him. Amen? These are God's shoes I'm wearing. God's pink shirt. You know God had a pink shirt, did you? Pink shirt. A Pepto-Bismol shirt. It belongs to the Lord, okay? Everything we have is God's. And we need to learn that not just to give Him the first fruits, but it's all His. And He said, don't glean, you leave it. And this was God's welfare system. I want you to notice that they left the corners, they left the edges, and they didn't go back more than once. They went through the field one time, and anything they missed, they left for the poor. But notice that the poor people, they didn't gather it up in bags and take it to their house and drop it on their doorstep. The poor people had to get up and go out and get it. The Bible says, a man who does not work shall not eat. Amen? Can I tell you that one of my biggest struggles, this is Pastor Days, I struggle with laziness. I don't get it. And I really don't get it when it's a husband who won't work and take care of his kids. The Bible says, a man who won't provide for his family is worse than what? An unbeliever. That's heavy. And the manna didn't drop in their mouths when they had manna fall from the sky. They had to get up out of the tent every morning and go get it. And you notice he wouldn't let them gather for a week's worth because he didn't want them to sit and watch an ESPN all week, right? He wanted them to get up every morning and go back out there and trust him and get it. And so they were to give the first fruits to the Lord and make sure they still minister to the poor because it's all God's. We're just being stewards of it. How are you doing with God's money? How are you doing with God's talent? How are you doing with God's abilities? How are you doing with the stuff that God has given you? Everything you have is His. If you have the ability to to teach the Bible, then God gave that to you and it's His, not yours, and you need to use it for Him. If you have the ability or the burden or the calling to minister to kids or, or to, to do worship or whatever it might be, do it for the Lord because it all belongs to Him. So the four feasts that we've seen already fulfilled. Number one, Passover points to what? Oh, guys, are we awake up here? I know some of you went to school, but you guys are older than that. The Passover points to what? The cross, okay? And then the unleavened bread points to Christ and Him being sinless and in the tomb. The first fruits points to what? The resurrection, okay? And then Pentecost points to what? Holy Spirit and the birth of the church. So let me do that one more time because that was weak, okay? Passover points to what? The cross, okay? And then unleavened bread points to the tomb, okay? And then first fruits points to? resurrection and then the pentecost points to holy spirit coming upon them all those were fulfilled in the first coming of christ amen now the last three feasts we're going to see in the rest of the chapter are all going to be fulfilled in christ in his second coming the first four have already taken place and now these last three are things that are yet to come now they had something they were looking back at but it also has something that is pointing forward to and i want you guys to see this hopefully you'll be blessed by it now First of all, of the first of the three feasts is the Feast of Trumpets. What do you think that might be pointing to? Somebody guess. Trumpets. There it is. Rapture. What's going to happen? Sound of a trumpet and then what? Out of here. Amen? Thank you, Jesus. Right? That's the next one, by the way. You notice that? 
The next feast, it's the one that's coming. Now I want you to notice though that there's a great expense of time. It goes from being early spring and summer to now we're going to go seven months later before it happens. Isn't it interesting that the first four happen, then there's a long expense of time, and then the last three feasts. And you know what? That's the church age. The time between when the Holy Spirit was given until Jesus Christ comes back. That's what we're living in right now. We're in the church age. And that's what this is talking about. There's seven months between when those first feasts took place and then all this time of waiting and then the next one that comes is the trumpet is going to blow. Praise God for that. Look at verse 23 and 24. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, Speak to the children of Israel, saying, In the seventh month, on the first day of the month, you shall have a Sabbath rest, a memorial of blowing of trumpets, Holy convocation. Now, I want to share this with you. If I haven't done it before, if I have done it before, then forgive me. The seventh month, seven is the number of what? Completion or perfection. In 2 Peter 3 8, it says, A day with the Lord is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is as a what? A day. 4,000 BC, if you look at biblical genealogy, 4,000 BC is when Adam and Eve fell into sin. Okay, take the genealogies, trace them back, approximately 4,000 B.C. It's been 2,000 years since Christ came. So how many years have we had? Six. 6,000 years. A thousand years is to a day, and a day is to a thousand years. When's the Sabbath? Seventh day. When's Jesus coming back? I believe seventh day. I believe we're in it. I believe He's coming soon and you see here very clearly the pattern throughout scripture six days and the seventh day he rested six days and we'll see here the seventh month why the seventh month why is it on the seventh month that the trumpets must be blown what do the trumpets point to the rapture when is christ going to rapture his church i believe in the seventh set of a thousand years and we're in it that means he could come any moment amen Shouldn't there be an urgency in our hearts? Now, the Bible says no man knows the day or the hour, and I'm, and I'm not certainly going to say that I do. But I do know this. The Bible says we can know the times and the seasons. Amen? And we can look around us, and we can see that the leaves are changing color, and we can know that it's fall. And the same is true in looking in God's Word over and over and over. Every prophecy that needs to be fulfilled has been. And the next one to be fulfilled is the Feast of Trumpets, and that thing's going to blow, and we're out of here. And you know what? Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Amen? But until he comes, what should we be busy doing? Working on your 401k. <laughs> right? Seeing how nice I can make the floor of my house shine. I mean, you know, seeing how, how much I can bench press. I mean, we've got all these things that we think are so important. But when this time has come and passed, only what we've done for Christ will last. Amen? And we look at the a day is a thousand years and a thousand years is to a day. And we're in that Sabbath day. We're entering in. The blowing of trumpets has a name. It's called Rosh Hashanah. Ever heard of that? And they blow the trumpets at the beginning of the year. And it was a time when they would examine themselves in preparation for the Day of Atonement that would come ten days later. Now, 1 Thessalonians, and this is speaking of the rapture, says this. For the Lord Himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up and the word there caught up is raptizo. And that's where we get the word rapture. 
People say rapture is not in the Bible. It's right here in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 17. The word caught up is raptizo. That's where we get the word rapture. And we shall be caught up together with Him in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. Man, it doesn't get any better than that. Amen? There's my 401k. There's my retirement program. I'm ha-ha, heaven bound. Amen? And that's what's important. That's where our focus needs to be. And it's so easy to get caught up in stuff. And the Lord said, you know what? Don't work on that day. It's the Sabbath. Get your eyes on me. Focus on me. Make me the priority. So the Feast of Trumpets was pointing to the rapture of the church and entering into His rest. Look at verse 25. You shall do no customary work on it. You shall offer, you shall offer an offering made by fire to the Lord. So the Feast of Trumpets... They blew the trumpets, they celebrated, and they rested. And isn't that what's going to happen when the church gets raptured? Amen? We're going to rest and we're going to celebrate. I'll tell you what, people in the world thinking that drinking beer and doing that kind of stuff is a party, I promise you, heaven is going to blow doors on any party the world ever thought about having. Amen? Do you think there's going to be some worshiping going on? Do you think we're going to be excited to be in heaven? Amen? But yeah, we walk around, oh yeah, I'm going to heaven now, yeah, that's right, well, okay, yeah, yeah. I, yeah. That's one of my favorite questions, man, how's your day? Oh, not real good. Going to heaven? Well, yeah, but that didn't help me right now, right? And the reality is that we need to have an eternal focus, because we are heaven bound. And that trumpet's going to blow, and it can blow any minute, and we need to be ready. The next one, the Day of Atonement. And the Lord spoke to Moses, Also the tenth day of the seventh month shall be the Day of Atonement. It shall be a holy convocation for you. You shall afflict your souls and offer an offering made by fire to the Lord. You shall do no work on that day, for it is the Day of Atonement to make atonement for you before the Lord your God. Now we've talked about the Day of Atonement in detail. That's the day when the high priest would take off his priestly garments and he would put on the plain linen. Again, a picture of Christ. He was born in linen. He was wrapped in linen at his death. He took the blood and he went through the veil and he sprinkled it on the Holy of Holies. And it was a a picture, again, of Jesus Christ. But here with the Jews, this as they are looking back at this Day of Atonement, and they're looking back at, at their own lives at this time of sacrifice, they also were looking forward to the coming Messiah. And they knew that this Day of Atonement pointed to the Messiah who would come and take away their sin. Now what's interesting about this to me is that this happens after the rapture in this context. What's going to happen after the rapture? What's going to happen to Israel? The most radical number of people getting saved in the history of that nation. Amen? Many will come to know Christ. Do you know there's going to be 144,000 Jewish witnesses? 12,000 of each of the 12 tribes of Israel. And people are going to be getting saved. It's going to be the time of Jacob's trouble. There's going to be three and a half years of torment. But in the end, they're going to look on him whom they pierced. And they're going to realize their need for him. And many Jews will come to know Christ. And so this Day of Atonement, here in this context, as they were looking forward to the coming Messiah, it will actually be the time when they finally realize who the Messiah is. And it's not the Antichrist who they're going to be duped by, but it's going to be Jesus. They're finally going to realize it's Him. 144,000 Jewish witnesses. The two witnesses that come back from the dead and are sharing the truth. And many Jews will come to know Christ. But again, what do they say? It says, do no work in verse 28. Why? Because the high priest alone did all the work. You don't do anything. The high priest does it. You don't do anything. Jesus did it for you. 
Amen? Verse 29. For any person who is not afflicted in his soul on that same day shall be cut off from his people. The word here, afflicted, basically to me, the best word I can use is convicted. They were to look at themselves. It was a time of fasting instead of feasting. And it was a time of self-examination. And they were to realize that they were sinners. And that's what this is talking about. Those who are not afflicted in their souls, those who are not convicted by their sin, shall be cut off from their people. Without conviction, there can be no conversion. Unless I see that I'm a sinner, I'll see no need for a Savior. And that's what this is talking about, is that there must be that conviction. Any person who does any work on that same day, that person I shall destroy from among his people. If you try to get to heaven on your good works, you're going to face destruction. Amen? He says, trust in me, Trust in the, in the Day of Atonement. Put your faith in me. Don't try to get there on your own. You know that Jehovah's Witnesses are trying to be one of the 144,000? Even though the Bible says that they're going to be Jews? I'd say, oh, I'm trying to be... Are you Jewish? Uh, no. Then you're done. You're not going to be. You can't be. Because the Bible's very clear, but biblical ignorance will kill you. And they're trying to work to become one of the 144,000. And he says here, don't do any work, because if you try to do work, it's going to end in destruction. I will cut you off from my people. Verse 31 and 32. You shall do no manner of work. It shall be a statute forever throughout your generations and all your dwellings. It shall be to you a Sabbath of solemn rest. You shall afflict your souls. On the ninth day of the month at evening, from evening to evening, you shall celebrate the Sabbath. Again, it's a time during the tribulation of affliction, a time of grief, but also a time of repentance when their eyes would be opened. They're going to be put in a heavy-duty situation that causes them to examine their own hearts. We're almost done here. Last one. Verse 33 through 44, Feast of Tabernacles. So you had the Feast of Trumpets, which is a picture of the rapture. And then you have the Day of Atonement, which is a picture of the Great Tribulation. What do you think is coming next? What happens at the end of the Great Tribulation? The Millennium. Let's read. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel, saying, The fifteenth day of the seventh month shall be a Feast of Tabernacles for seven days to the Lord. On the first day there shall be a holy convocation. You shall do no customary work. For seven days you shall offer an offering made by fire to the Lord. On the eighth day have a holy convocation. You shall offer an offering made by fire to the Lord. It is sacred. A sacred assembly. You shall do no customary work on it. Is he making clear you're not to do any work? Okay, no work. These are the feasts of the Lord, which you shall proclaim to be holy convocations, to offer an offering made by fire to the Lord, a burnt offering and a grain offering and a sacrifice and drink offerings and everything on its day. Besides the Sabbaths of the Lord, besides your gifts, besides all your vows, besides all your freewill offerings which you give to the Lord. So during this time of the Feast of Tabernacles was the greatest time of giving. They were looking back at being delivered out of bondage and the time that God was providing for them in the wilderness. And this is the greatest time of giving ever all year long. There was no greater time of giving. There was no greater time of joy. There was no greater time of celebration. There was no greater time of rest and of peace than during these seven days. What's that a picture of? It's a picture of what's coming. And this gift, it's interesting to me that the Bible says that when we get to heaven that there are going to be gifts given to us. We're going to be given what? Crowns. And many have said that what would we do with those crowns? Throw them down at His feet. 
This is the greatest time of giving gifts to the Lord anywhere in Scripture, right here during the Feast of Tabernacles. And I believe it's a picture of the millennial kingdom and in heaven when we will be giving everything we have to the Lord. Because when we see Him as, we is, we'll be, as He is, we'll be holding nothing back anymore. Amen? When you look in the face of Christ, nothing else is going to matter. Nothing. Lord, how can you give me anything? Here, take it. Lord, I, I, I can't believe I'm here. Thank you, Lord. And this is a picture of that in that this is the greatest time of giving of any of the feasts. We're almost done. Verse 39. Also on the fifteenth day of the seventh month, when you have gathered the fruit of the land, you shall keep the feast of the Lord for seven days. On the first day there shall be a Sabbath rest, and on the eighth there shall be a Sabbath rest. And you shall take for yourselves on the first day the fruit of brutiful trees, branches of palm trees, bows of leafy trees, and willows from the brook. And you shall rejoice before the Lord your God for seven days. So how long is this rejoicing going to last? Seven days straight, just rejoicing before God for what He had done for them. They're looking back at His provision for them in the wilderness. And we're going to be, when we get to heaven, looking back at the fact that He provided for us and He delivered us from the wilderness of sin. Amen? And He brought us into the promised land. And they're looking back at their deliverance from the wilderness and being brought into the land of promise. And the same thing will be happening with us. A time of great rejoicing and fellowship. A time of feasting and resting before Almighty God. A time of bountiful harvest and God's provision. Verse 41. shall keep it as a feast to the Lord for seven days in the year. It shall be a statute forever in your generations. You shall celebrate it in the seventh month. You shall dwell in booths for seven days. All who are native Israelites shall dwell in booths. That your generations may know that I have made... The children of Israel dwell in booths when I brought them out of the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. Now, why did they dwell in booths? It was an opportunity to share with their kids what God had done. They would build these little booths that had, they could look up and they could see the stars, and they would literally move out of the city, and they, they had to be a, a day's, Sabbath day's journey, couldn't be more than half a mile away from the temple, and they would take their kids out. And imagine taking your kids out on a camping trip, and you're out there sitting in these little booths, and no doubt your kids would say, why do we do this every year? Now, they're probably having a great time, but every time they asked, it was an opportunity to remind them of God's provision. You know why? Because our ancestors wandered in the wilderness, and this was God's way of protecting and providing for them. And you know what? He's protected and provided for us. I know no greater joy than to know my children walk in the truth. There's nothing more important that we can do as parents than to share with our kids the love of God, not just in our words, but also in the way that we live in front of them. Amen? And that's what this was all about, was to point the children to the Savior. Again, God's provision, not man's works. Verse 44, So Moses declared to the children of Israel the feasts of the Lord. So the Feast of the Tabernacle was the greatest of all celebrations. It was a feast that ended the harvest season. It was the greatest time of giving. They were looking back on their deliverance, and they were celebrating their current blessing. It was a time of feasting and resting and rejoicing before the Lord. And I'll tell you what, if that's not a a, a picture of heaven, I don't know what is. And so we see here in these final three feasts that you have the first one that pictures the rapture. The second one that pictures the tribulation. And the third one that pictures the millennial kingdom that you and I will spend a thousand years with the Lord seeing what the world would be like with God in charge. Looking forward to that? Amen? I'm looking forward to that. So in review, celebration and expectation. And I love this too, that they were dwelling in tents. What do we dwell in? Tents. And after they got to the land of promise, they didn't have to dwell in tents anymore. 
Amen? And we get the land of promise, we won't be carrying these dead tents around anymore either. Aren't you glad? Amen? Won't be carrying them around anymore. So, here's the, here's the, here's the quiz, okay? Passover points to what? The cross. Unleavened bread points to Christ in the tomb. First fruits points to? The resurrection. Pentecost points to? Holy Spirit coming. The Feast of Trumpets points to? The rapture. The Day of Atonement points to? Tribulation. And the Feast of Tabernacles points to? The Millennial Kingdom. Does the Bible rock or what? Don't you love just seeing in the Old Testament such a clear picture of what lies before us? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You and we praise You. And Lord, I pray that we would look back with celebration and look forward with expectation as well. But Lord, we too would have that same heart and that same desire, Lord, and we know that we're in the the final hours, Lord, that that trumpet could blow. Lord, I pray if it would blow during this prayer, Lord, then come quickly, Lord Jesus. But Lord, if not, I pray until you do come, that Lord, we would be faithful to serve you, that our eyes would be looking up, that we would do no work that takes our eyes off of you, that we would not be focused on the world, but on your kingdom. And Lord, when we do work, Father God, that it would be an opportunity and a divine appointment to tell others about you. Father, I just thank you and I praise you for your word. I thank you for each person who's here tonight. I do pray, Lord, if there's people here that are burdened or struggling, that, Father God, they would know that you love them, that you care. Lord, they don't have to go through this life alone. Father, if they don't know you, I pray that they would just see that they're sinners in need of a Savior and that you paid the price. There's no work they can do. And Lord, for those of us who do know you, who may be struggling, Lord, I just pray for a fresh outpouring of your Holy Spirit upon us. Without you, we can do nothing. So Lord, we love you. We praise you. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, let's stand and close and worship song.